Eye on Arabia, reporting, analysis, and the occasional surprise from author and Middle East specialist Joseph Browdy. As a kid, I used to listen to broadcasts from faraway places via shortwave radio, the transmission typically uneven and full of static. Today, those distant voices come in clear as a bell via streaming audio on any smartphone. Late the other night, I was surfing Arabic radio stations from Baghdad to Algiers and by chance heard two women speaking the language impeccably but with a peculiar accent. Where were they from? I listened a while and eventually heard this. From the Korean capital Seoul, the announcer says, we meet again over the airwaves, coming together in love, in goodness, and in hope. It's the Arabic service of KBS, the Korean broadcasting system. Top of the hour news details South Korea's military readiness to face its saber-rattling neighbor to the north and a visit to Europe by the Korean president. The political news is read by a man with an Egyptian accent, but then another Korean voice comes in with a business report. Korean exports exceeded $50 billion for the month of October, he says, a new record for a country that exported only $19 million a year following its independence from Japan. After station identification, it's back to those Korean ladies again. Forty-one students in Dubai just took a Korean proficiency exam, bringing the total number of Arabs who have taken the test to 236, 152 Egyptians and 84 Emiratis. My goodness! And so continues the advance toward the furthering of relations and friendship between Koreans and Arabs, which will increase our mutual cooperation and understanding of one another, God willing. The show goes on to cover the latest in Korean cinema and music and teach you how to say things like, hey, how's it going, and what's your name in Korean. As the clock strikes the hour, the show loops back to the beginning and repeats, just one hour of new content per day. I got curious. What are Koreans hoping to accomplish exactly by broadcasting to the Arab world? South Korea sees the Arab world as an important market for manufactured goods, uh, for construction. They get virtually all their oil from the Middle East. That's John Alterman, director of the Middle East program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. They have a contract to build the nuclear reactors in Abu Dhabi. They have a detachment of special forces that are helping train the Emirati special forces. I think South Korea sees itself coming into some of the commercial role that the United States has traditionally occupied and creating some reciprocity between the South Korea thirst for oil and the South Korean ability to manufacture. And they see the Middle East as a market that helps South Korean industry. One of their challenges is nobody has really heard of Korea. 
I mean, people have heard of China, ancient relations with the Middle East. People have heard of Japan, which has very long-standing relations with a lot of countries in the region, but no word comes to mind when people think about Korea, and they're trying to invest that idea with something. And that would be where the Korean Broadcasting Service in Arabic comes in. It's a tool for what Americans call public diplomacy, that is, a proactive effort to influence foreign publics in support of a country's foreign policies. The United States invests hundreds of millions of dollars annually in its own public diplomacy outreach to the Arab world, including a non-stop broadcast called SOA that airs on local FM radio across North Africa and the Middle East. SOA competes for Arab attention with rival broadcasts from China, Russia, Iran, and every country in Western Europe, as well as transnational movements ranging from the Muslim Brotherhood to the Vatican. It's a multi-billion dollar industry, but whether the broadcasts are achieving their objectives is unclear. Everybody in the world just about now is broadcasting Arabic. But not every Arab is listening to them. <laughs> That's Philip Saib, professor of journalism, public communications, and international relations at the University of Southern California. Even the BBC these days is having trouble getting audience in the Arab world, and uh, they've got a, an established reputation. What I know from spending time in the Arab world is that a lot of these foreign broadcasters have spent a lot of money to reach uh, just a handful of people. It isn't easy to gauge how much money foreign powers are spending or what their ratings are. Audience research in the Arab world is notoriously unreliable. But one useful indicator, at least as far as younger listeners is concerned, is the number of Twitter followers a given radio network has. Out of curiosity, I check KBS Arabic's Twitter account and compare it with that of America's Radio Sawa and discover that it is punching way above its weight. Whereas 24-hour-a-day SOA, with an annual budget in excess of $22 million, has won 60,000 Twitter followers, Korea's Arabic service, with only three full-time employees and one hour of programming daily, has managed to exceed 10,000. Open Gangnam Style! So the question of the day is, what is the secret of Korea's success? To try and find out, I call KBS headquarters in the Korean capital Seoul and speak with Bae Jung Ok, director of the Arabic section. Hello. Hello, Altismaini. Ah, Whenever I host a program or an interview, I always wonder whether anybody out there hears the reflections of my heart. And my goodness, you were in Washington and you heard me. Wow, it's a dream come true. I ask her how she views the nature of her work. They call us civil ambassadors. We try as much as we can to be bridges between the two cultures. That's how we feel about what we do, and our Arab guests see us that way too. 
There's a lot in common between Arab and Korean cultures. For example, young people respect the elderly. Many of the same oriental values are present in both cultures. I think this makes it a lot easier to narrow the distance between us. It turns out that KBS Arabic is no spring chicken. Peijang Ok tells me it's been on the air since September 1975, following the 1973 Arab oil embargo, which was launched in response to American support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War. The embargo caused a spike in oil prices and a global recession, and drove home the message that foreign powers ignore Arab feelings at their peril. In the early 70s, there was the energy crisis, and there were no Arab affairs specialists in Korea. So the government focused on developing Arabic language expertise. Over time, we realized that we needed as well to foster cultural, academic, and social cooperation. And one can't get close to other countries for economic motivations alone. Thirty-eight years later, the network still operates on a shoestring budget, with 20 part-time freelancers helping out the full-time staff of three. But they believe their audience now is vastly larger. Having barely any bureaucracy to navigate is a sort of a blessing for KBS Arabic, in that the staff keeps nimble and directly engaged with listeners, and enjoys the freedom to tweak the programming based on what works. Beijing Ok feels that her success in growing the audience has been due largely to the intensely personal relationship she fosters with listeners. Ordinary listeners from, say, Algeria would send us a listener's report, that is, how they came to hear us, as well as comments about our programs, or, I liked it when you presented this or covered this topic. Eventually, in time, they also started talking personal matters. For example, today's my birthday, or my daughter got married, or my wife had a baby, and we would begin to respond to them on the show. One day, a listener let us know in advance that on such and such a day he was going to get married. At the time, I was hosting a music segment. And so, of course, I congratulated him during the show and dedicated a song to the happy couple. He was very happy, and he recorded it and played it at the wedding. <laughs> Such exchanges of emotions can be very powerful. Now, the KBS approach may work out just fine for a relatively small country, new to North Africa and the Middle East, that's trying to make a good first impression on Arabs. But its recipe for success may be barely relevant to a superpower like the United States, which is well-known, ubiquitous, not entirely well-liked, and struggling to defend sweeping policies and vast interests. Nor, for that matter, is KBS Arabic even trying to become a source of news and information about the world beyond the Korean peninsula. Nonetheless, there's at least one glaring lesson Americans can draw from KBS, and that is the benefits of having Arabs share the microphone with the country's natives, whose impeccable Arabic speaks to their devotion to understanding and relating to Arab societies. There are no American-born broadcasters on the U.S.-backed Radio Sawa, or for that matter, Britons on the BBC Arabic or Chinese nationals on Beijing's CRI. 
When the Arabic section of KBS got started, we had Korean graduates in Arabic studies from the university. And so at first we had on only Koreans fluent in Arabic. And over time, their Arabic got better and better. But in the 21st century, Arabs started gushing into Korea. And many of them live here now. And we have begun to mix the two voices on our programming, Arabs and Koreans together. And I think the audience response has been better. They always tell us, you're different than the other foreign networks. Usually they just use Arab broadcasters, whereas you have your own citizens working side by side with Arabs. Maybe this is our advantage. South Korea, unlike China, Russia, or Iran, is an ally of the United States. But does it follow that the growing relationship between Korea and the Arab world is good for the United States? And what are the implications of these ties for American policy, whether toward the Middle East or with respect to the widely touted pivot to Asia? John Alterman of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. On the one hand, strategically, we, we do see eye to eye with South Korea. Commercially, they're competing against American companies in many cases. I would expect that this is going to be a relationship which is partly satisfactory and partly unsatisfactory. I don't think they want to replace the United States, but they certainly want to supplement the United States. It may be that we don't import Middle Eastern oil directly in the coming years, but we import Middle Eastern oil indirectly when we buy products that are manufactured in Asia and then sent to the United States. Those are manufactured on Middle Eastern energy. And we become tied to the whole development of Asia Middle East. And our economy com- becomes tied to the Middle East, not mediated through this sort of Levant-centered, legalistically-centered, traditional Middle East policy, but through a more mercantile, free flow of trade, protecting the sea lanes orientation. What that means, I think, is that we have to think more about who's paying to protect the sea lanes. And does it make sense for the United States to provide all of this security for free when other consumers, huge consumers of energy, are freeloading on American efforts. It's clear in any case that under the shade of America's security umbrella in the Middle East, Koreans have been making strong inroads. Are there ways in which the United States could benefit from those inroads, whether on the ground or over the airwaves? Sometimes even a superpower can use some help. And to quote an old Korean proverb I just learned in Arabic translation, A great river does not refuse small streams. You've been listening to Eye on Arabia. If you'd like to learn more or get in touch, follow me on Twitter at J-O-S-E-P-H-B-R-A-U-D-E or browse www.josephbrowdy.com. On my homepage, you'll also find a link to my weekly podcast in Arabic, Risalat New York as well as links to books, articles, and upcoming events.